Namaste and welcome to Expulsion at 50, an oral history project created to commemorate the 50-year anniversary of the expulsion of Asians from Uganda back in 1972. One of the reasons cited for expelling the Asians was their visible and significant control of the economy, both in the retail sector and as industrialists. In this episode, I explore the question of what made the Indian businesses so successful. Back in December 2021, I had the honor of speaking to Jafar Kapasi, whose footprint in business started with his father back in Uganda. I hope you find our conversation interesting and insightful. My father was the fifth child of my grandfather. And they had a business in a place called Sawarkunla in India, in the state of Gujarat, Katliawad. And um, the business was failing. And so my grandfather decided to send my, my father to Africa. He was only 14 years old. Uh, he landed in Mombasa in Adao, actually, you know, and you can see the journey I had to go to uh, crossing the Indian Ocean. <laughs> and uh, he was received uh, at, at the port, Mombasa port, by my grandfather's cousin. And this is how the story began. My father started to work in the stationary business of uh, uh, this Dungawala family. And uh, he started to learn the language, the Swahili, and how to trade, how to deal with customers. And, and, and the journey begins. Just after a few months later, a cousin of my, uh, this Dungawala family from Kampala arrived in Mombasa. And he saw my father working in the business. And he said, can, can I have this boy uh, for Kampala because my business is expanding and I need someone there. And uh, you know, Mr. Dungawala said, look, he's, um, just come and he's still learning. I said, no, 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 I really desperately need somebody in Kampala. So this is how he landed up in, uh, and, and again, same Dungawala family, but they're cousins in, in Kampala. And later on, uh, in the same business environment, he also uh, was invited by another gentleman from Masindi, uh, Mr. Rajabali Abdulali, to uh, work for him in his business. And so this is how he migrated from Mombasa to Kampala to Masindi. And Masindi was a very small village. Uh, and, and, and the lifestyle was very much like a, a Gujarati village in India. Uh, there were, most of the people there were, the, were, were traders. And uh, my father started to learn the language, Swahili. And uh, he was living with his, um, in fact, this Dungawala family. They had a very large house. I remember him telling me that uh, he was paid about five pounds a year for, <laughs> for all the work. And after about six months, uh, uh, he was encouraged to set up his own business, which was in a very small village called Bugungu. Mm. And in, by 1932, uh, he was asked to set up his own business. A small village, again, um, on Lake Albert. There was no electricity, no hospitals, no schools. And the uh, people carried goods on the bicycles and on the, on the cycle track. 
and they used to stop by the elephants and they would block the, this small track for hours and would not let them pass. Uh, and no electricity and no uh, piped water. So you can see what struggle they have been through. And there are just a few Indian families there, mainly Gujaratis. And then he progressed well from there and then he moved to a place called Butiaba, which again was on the shores of Lake Alba. Uh, Butiaba was flourishing because they had a ship called Robert, Robert Corinden. Uh, the ship used to carry cotton between Congo and, and Uganda. My father really prospered there at such a fast speed. Uh, in his shop, he used to sell anything from, he had this uh, hand pump, uh, petrol, petrol pump, he used to sell fish nets to uh, the fabric to make gomasi, the, the Africans, which Africans wore. And then he used to even sell Kit Kats. So, so it was uh, a mixture of all uh, in the shop, you'd find anything. Uh, there's only two shops in the town and there's two Indian families there, that, that, that's it. But many of his customers were whites, you know, because the ship, the Robert Corinne, which was built in Scotland, they, the, the, the ship's captain plus some of the top crew were all British. And they had their, their lavish lifestyle there. You know, they used to have their own quarters there and they used to buy everything and anything. And then in 1948, 49, my father uh, decided to go back to India, ready to get married. got married in, in Mumbai and my mother comes from Mumbai and she was born there. So again, she had to adjust to a very different lifestyle, learn the language, we had to help my father in the business. Uh, and she again started learning uh, how to trade as well. Now, the other thing was, you know, Butiaba is very near Murchison Falls. So people used to come there as tourists uh, also people from India, um, UK and Germany, uh, America. So it was more or less a sort of tourist uh, attraction place where it, again, it generated more business for my father. The, and the ship was the, the biggest employer because you know, they employed hundreds of people you know, to man the ship, to load it, you know, to maintain it and so on. So that, that was a, the, the real attraction. But I think Ernest Hemmings may have traveled on this ship called Robert <laughs> Corinda. It's about a thousand ton displacement capacity. And believe me, it had a theater on as well. They had the theater, they had cane furniture, a sort of a very lavish. The SS Corindon was known as Uganda's greatest ferry, transporting goods and people across Lake Albert. More will be revealed later. So you see, because Budiaba didn't have any hospital, so my Mother had to bring me, so I was born in Sindhi because there was no hospitals there. So my, my mother had to come to the place where my father used to work. That's where she stayed. There was no proper hotels and so on. There was only one hotel called Masindi Hotel. My brother and I were becoming older. So I was four and my elder brother was five. So my father said, look, we can't live much more in Butiaba, even though we are making a lot of money. We are so busy here making money. 
but we have to think of the education for our children. So he decided to move to Masindi where they had hospitals, schools. So we came to Masindi and the business in the beginning wasn't very good. He had to make inroads and he had to <laughs> struggle to get through, started doing a hardware DIY business. And he wanted a specialist hardware DIY business. There was a lot of demand there. there was, the people were demanding building materials, cement, and things like that. So uh, he, he set up a shop there, which was selling all this. In fact, he used to sell uh, motorboat engines to Vespa scooters and, <laughs> and each and everything there. Under colonial rule, the British had a policy of separate development, whereby community schools were established for the different races. Integration started once Uganda gained independence in 1962. But anyway, in Masindi, I think things got better because you know, we went to a school called Masindi Public School, which again was mainly a Gujarati-run school. All the majority of the teachers were Gujarati. And we spoke, in fact, everything was taught in Gujarati as a first language. Uh, and I remember Mr. Maganda and Mr. Bharat and all those teachers who used to teach us you know, the proper Indian way of life. Comes 1962 and things really changed when we were asked to uh, make sure that English is the first language, not the Gujarati. Uh, and the second language would be Swahili and the third language would be Gujarati. And in 1962, that's when we had the electricity. Before that, we were using lantern. Then onwards, you know, we went to a school built by the Americans. Uh, uh, it's called Kabalega, uh, Kabalega High School. Uh, which was named after the king, after the present king's grandfather. Quite a lot of teachers were either English or Canadians uh, and, and very few Indians. I remember Dr. seeing Dr. No, <laughs> James Bond movie uh, in, 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 in Masindi. That was the first movie I think I remember I saw. So they introduced a lot of English way of life to other headmaster one day summoned me to his home and said, look, I, I want to teach you how to eat in, uh, with, with fork and knife. school, your father was really established in business <clears throat> with a hardware store in Masindi and other shops in Butiaba. And I wonder, Jaffa Bai, were you also expected to work in the shop? But the other thing my, which my father did was, uh, was excellent was he, he wanted to make sure that we also follow in his footsteps in terms of running a shop. So uh, we used to go early in the morning to the school about eight o'clock would come home by three. At four o'clock we had to be in the shop. It was compulsory for us to be in the shop between four and five. I think I learned uh, that what, what my father was doing in the business and how he was making money and also learned about the trade, the hardware trade, because he used to, for example, make us um, say if somebody wanted the six inch nails and he, he would make sure that we actually uh, I weighed on the scale and then I collect the, the right change from the customer. And also I treat the customer well, you know, with discipline, with, with good humor, and make sure that he comes back again. And also, you see, the other thing was because my father spoke very little English, 
spider there in a very successful business. Uh, he learned a few, quite a few good English words from us because we were <laughs> educated uh, in English by the English teachers and others. Uh, and he used to make us uh, read Uganda Argus, you know, the, the National Daily. He, one day when I saw a big advertisement in, in Uganda Argus that East African railways are selling this ship in which we, we saw it in Butiaba, Robert Corinne, on a tender basis. So, in fact, we bid for it in the, in the East African Railways. And, uh, in fact, he, he won the tender. Wow, that's quite something. Um, so what was he planning to do with the ship? So my father had an idea of converting that ship into a floating hotel. And the reason for the floating hotel was to see surrounded by animals, you know, uh, elephants, you could see giraffes, you could see zebras, all that. And it's certain... An, the ship already had the facility for Papa, uh, the proper hotel facility. They had cane furniture. The rooms were very well uh, designed for, for, for a hotel. And he had to spend just a few, maybe a few thousand dollars, maybe, or whatever you want to call it, just to make it into an upgraded um, floating hotel. Your father was really enterprising and, wow, quite a risk taker as well. Yes, he was, despite the fact that he was only learned four classes in Gujarati. In, <laughs> in uh, Gujarati, he, he was, he had a lot of um, entrepreneur skills. And... So where do you think that spirit of enterprise and that determination, you know, comes from? I think, as you know, see, if you look at the, the in India as well, you know, the majority of the entrepreneurs or wheelers and dealers, as we call it here, are Gujaratis. But we are known as, as traders, like, like the Parsi community has been in, in, in Mumbai. So we, we have got this ingrained thing about like the, the Bora, the word Bora means trader, the Daudi Boras, we are Daudi Boras. So in fact, if you, if you come across many Daudi Boras, you'll find that they're either small traders or uh, retailers or wholesalers, and some are in fact put into manufacturing. So one could say East Africa was kind of virgin territory for Gujaratis to set up the different businesses. Local people, they didn't have this acumen. Even today, I mean, I've been to Uganda so many times, and I talked to African friends who I work with. I was like, you need to acquire this. I know you, Uganda is such a rich country, but you know, you have to acquire this trading, or you've got to be a business acumen, you know, to, to do what we used to do, or my forefathers used to do it in Uganda, which I, I see there's still a big gap. August 1972, he announced the expulsion. He, he said that he had a dream as his Tororo barracks, um, and he has he had been asked by by his whoever by his Allah whoever to expel all the Asians from the from the community from from Uganda. And when we heard this in uh, Masindi on the on the radio, uh, we thought this simply it as a joke. And uh, you know, my father said, this country cannot survive without the Asians or the Asians or the Indians because 
we control over 90% of the economy, retail, wholesale, manufacturing. Even if you look at the professions, there's doctors, lawyers, engineers, technicians, all majority of the nations. Post-independence, as part of the Africanization policy, the rules and regulations for having a business in Uganda kept changing. In many instances, non-citizens were required to apply for trading licenses. Um, so my father was a loyalist in that way, that he, he didn't want to, he wanted to become a citizen of Uganda. So we, he, when it was announced that please do apply, he applied on time, in time. Uganda nationality. In fact, we chased and chased. We we hired an agent, chased the, the homes, home, home office of Uganda to see if we, we could acquire the Ugandan citizenship, which was never processed. Trying to run our businesses there, and we, we knew we had pressure to, to, to change the Ugandan citizenship, but you know, nothing happened, not, nothing changed. Uh, and we just kept on kept on trading and <laughs> kept on chasing, and you know, we kept on kept on getting new rules about who we can employ, who can run the businesses, and people have to apply for annual licenses. You know, I'm saying Masindi, we have to annual, apply for annual license to keep on trading. Injustice we suffered when, when we were there, despite the fact that majority of the people were loyalists and you know, they wanted to stay there. And, and, and Uganda was their home, their children were born there, and they didn't know any other way of life. And none, none of them wanted to go back and settle three stuff in India, you know, where Things that the villages with the left, there are things that would have moved, moved on. And there was no way that could sort of start in India. As the deadline approached, most businesses had little choice of what to do with their assets. The problem we had was, as I mentioned, there's a lot of stock in the, in the business. And unfortunately, we got pictures of that as well. And the major problem we had was how to sell this to people we haven't got that kind of money to buy the goods. But the cars, there's no way you could sell the car because people didn't have the money to, to buy the they had the money to buy the cars. And there's so many also being available because everybody was leaving, those people who had the wealth, it was leaving. So there was a lot of uh, uh, goods and commodities and everything available uh, to, to, to give or to just leave it. I mean, if I got TV, I think we only had two TV sets in the town in Masindi in, in those days. And what do we do with it? So there's a lot of um, losses which uh, the, 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 our people suffer. In fact, uh, if you look at the other aspects, insurance policies or whatever we had, you know, um, it was of no value. How did your staff react to the fact that you are now closing up and leaving the country? Yes, I, I think few genuinely cried, you know, because they said, look, we haven't got a job now, so what do we do? Okay, you're giving us quite a bit of gifts, but how long will it last? So some of them were genuinely crying and they didn't want us to go, but he said, look, what can we do? There's nothing we can do to stop the government, you know, uh, forcing you to leave the country. What they're saying, please come back, you know, once, uh, you know, things are better for you. You know, they say, we pray for you. And those are very kind sentiments. How was it for your parents, you know, after all the hard work and now just to walk away from it all? I think it's a real trauma and uh, real suffering in their hearts of uh, leaving a country which they thought it was their home.
After a short stay in the refugee camps, Jafarbai's family moved to Leicester, where they started a new life. He went on to study at university and qualified as an accountant. The thing is that we lived as a minority in um, Uganda, uh, and so we had already, our, our brain was already uh, trained to accept minority uh, status in, in England. I started my own practice from home in 1986. And then within six months, you know, I progressed so fast that I, was, I had to set up a, a proper office. And then I soon realized that the, the, the Asians were trading amongst themselves rather than with the mainstream. So I approached a number of people on Belgrave Road, you know, Sari Mandir and others, and said, yeah, I think we need to set up our own Asian Chamber of Commerce. And um, so you got together and, and set up a proper, you know, working chamber and started inviting the mainstream businesses to work with us, see if we could, if they could get orders from them to, to expand our businesses, whatever. But you see, by 1986, quite a lot of businesses, the people from, especially particularly from East Africa, set up businesses on Belgrave Road and Melton Road. In fact, city council had earmarked this road for demolition, but soon the Asians came in, started developing businesses from the beginning. Family set up, you know, with wives and children helping in the business, long hours, you know, working on Saturdays and Sundays. And that, that's, and then soon, you know, we started the meetings with the uh, Chamber of Commerce. And it took us two years to negotiate a deal with them so that we could be on their board and they could be on our board. And this actually resulted in me getting an OBE, order of the British Empire for uh, encouraging the Asian businesses to trade with the mainstream businesses. Uh, and you can see that Leicester has really prospered. Even today, you find there's so many businesses, uh, anything from food sector to manufacturing to uh, you name it, you know, the Asians are there and they're very flourishing businesses. 20 years later, Jaffa Bai finds himself in Uganda again. It comes 1992, and uh, I was asked by the, the, a journalist named Graham Dedman uh, to, to, to come with, in fact, to go with him to Uganda to see what had happened to our assets. So we, we flew from here to, to Entebbe and, and on to Kampala, and then we went to Masindi as well. Uh, and uh, uh, we saw that the property which we left in 1972, it had the same paintwork, <laughs> everything was exactly the same, except that the few doors and the few doors and the windows were missing. I went to my school, same thing again, the windows and other pictures of that, and, and Uganda was in such a poor state. It comes 1994, too, because I was enrolled in Chamber of Commerce, we decided to lead a trade mission. In fact, I was the I led the trade mission to Kampala uh, to promote trade. And we had about 12, 13 businesses who joined me, quite a few of them originally off Uganda. And we found that there's a lot of trading opportunities there and, and, and the corruption was at zero level at that time. Uh, and um, Uganda needed everything, anything. In fact, yeah, the locals were asking us to buy secondhand goods and from, from England because you know, the China was already there and, and trying to compete. In terms of prices and so on, so there's a okay, we'll buy your fridges with second hand, your cookers with the second hand electric cookers and so on. But so the and, and quite a few of uh, people actually 
got orders you know, to supply them by Uganda, particularly the pharmacy, pharmacies. You know, there's a lot of opportunities there. And then comes 1990, in fact, we met President Museveni, who made time for us. And he was, in fact, he, he was very supportive. Comes 1996, I led another trade mission to this designed to all the countries, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania. And again, a lot of trading opportunities were explored and many of the businesses benefited by getting orders and so on. Over the past 40 years or so, a few thousand Indians have returned and established businesses back in Uganda. President Museveni appointed Jafabai to be the Consul General at the Ugandan High Commission in the UK, a role he continues to this day. I am Dola Vasani, and thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Till next time, keep well and stay safe.